All right, well, let's have a word of prayer. And I'll read something and then get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful that we get to think on your nature, think on uh, the persons of your Trinity, that we even get to think about the Son who was given as a sacrifice for our sakes and was uh, our perfect uh, example as to how we should act in this world. We pray for uh, wisdom as we talk about these things, that as we talk about something as important as your Son, that we will have wisdom as we do it and more understanding and not confusion. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> now, to start things off, we're talking about Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, this was, for me growing up, uh, in a fundamentalist house, <coughs> uh, kind of the Old Testament was interesting, but not completely necessary. Uh, but the New Testament was the thing, because that talked about Christ. And what I learned later on was that the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about the same thing. Uh, I'm just going to start off with Luke chapter 24, verse 44, to kind of get our minds wrapped around this thing. Luke 24, verse 44, this is Christ speaking. Um, he says, now he said to them, this is Christ talking, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and raise again from the dead the third day. And he goes into the gospel. But he goes into the gospel talking about his death, resurrection, forgiveness of sins, uh, and his name to all the nations, being from Jerusalem, all these things stemming from, and he sums up the Old Testament as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the, and the Psalms. Not as those are the only places, but that's a, uh, I forgot what we call it, some kind of, uh, way of summing up the scriptures. And when you have a the in front of scriptures, oftentimes it's talking about the Old Testament. So that's kind of interesting, don't you think? That's, that Christ is talking about himself as the main topic of the Old Testament. And so today what we want to do is we want to look at what is it Christ is talking about when he's kind of speaking of himself as the main topic of the Old Testament. Uh, when I was in, I was at Puritan, I think it was, um, in seminary, uh, I took this class called Old Testament Exegesis. And uh, the professor starts the class saying, all right, 
how, uh, what would you say is the main topic of the, old, of the Old Testament? And he spent about a half hour asking that question. We didn't know. We said things like, well, covenant is the main idea in the Old Testament, or um, I think we said the law. We had all kinds of different ideas. And these are people that are in seminary, right, that should know these answers right away, but we didn't know. Uh, he had to guide us to the right answer, which is the Old Testament is about Christ. He's the main topic. So, um, if you look on your little sheet there, there's three things we want to look at. We want to define what the Christ means when we say Christ. We want to see if there was a pre-existence to Christ. That's pretty important. Um, and then we want to see what his, what his work was <coughs> in the Old Testament. Okay. So, God the Son never began, and this is, this is just review of what we already talked about, I think, before. Uh, that he has always been the Son. That's your first one. Why is that important, do you think? Why is it important that the Son isn't a new thing that he became, but he's just always been the son. Anyone? Well, the Trinity has always existed. Okay. And the Trinity has existed in a particular way, right? It's not just God duplicated three times. There's a relationship in there. So what is the relationship? Okay, there's a father-son relationship. And a, and a spirit relationship, right? And it's not just that that's a, an analogy, right? Father-son relationship is not an analogy so we can understand God. It's a thing that they existed in before time. Okay? And so, um, God the Son, then, uh, what happens in the Trinity? They decide... We can put it into human terms. In the Trinity, creation is decided upon. Now, in human terms, decision means we weren't thinking about it, now we are thinking about it. And I, and I know that's not what the Trinity's about, right? They don't start thinking about something. Um, so in the mind of God, creation was always there. A time was set to, if you want to call it that, I mean, time wasn't invented yet, right? Or created yet. So this is really hard to understand, but at some point, a, an agreement was made about what creation will look like. Does that make sense? And so they make a covenant between themselves. Does anyone remember what that covenant is called? This kind of bends our mind a little bit because before anything was ever made, okay, we get there in the when creation is already done, but before even all that, we have something called the covenant of redemption. So remember that term, where the Trinity is saying, "This is how; these are the roles each of us will play after creation," and they're already talking about redemption. So before 
The world is made. The son is going to be the what? Redeemer. Redeemer, yes. So in your blank, what we're going to put there, instead of redeemer, we're going to put an Old Testament word. God the son agreed to his role as Messiah before creation. He was going to be the Messiah. That word Messiah is the idea of being anointed, the anointed one, the chosen one, the elect one who will save his people. Okay, So salvation is already being considered, not considered, um, arranged, right? Salvation is already being arranged before let there be light was ever spoken by God. God the Son began his role as Messiah in Genesis 3.15. His role began. Okay? Genesis 3.15. Let's read it. You all know about the fall, right? Thank you. Um, how did the... Uh, before we get to the fall part where someone sinned, what was... Um, in every story, there's a setting, right? Have you learned your plot line? We need to learn plot line eventually. <laughs> um, remember, you have a setting. Then you have an inciting moment. Uh, so, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Does everyone know Romeo and Juliet? They die in the end. Spoiler alert. I'm sorry, I didn't say it fast enough. Uh, you know, there's a setting where Romeo's all sad and whiny. Then there's an inciting moment where he gets invited to a party. And then they go to the party. Okay, this is how a, a story kind of evolves, right? Uh, so what's the setting in the garden? What's everything look like before everything goes bad? Perfect. Okay, it's perfect. Are there conditions upon which they have to live? What are the conditions? Okay, and what are the things that are right? What does God say, do this and live, do this and die? What's those conditions? Can't eat from the tree of good people. Okay, but you can eat of any other tree, just not this one, right? And they're supposed to uh, populate, right? Be fruitful, multiply. Subdue the earth, rule over it. So there's this picture of what life will look like if they keep obeying. Um, eventually, um, they won't even be limited to the garden, right? Because it says to subdue, not the garden, just the garden, right? Subdue the earth. Rule over the earth. So there's some future thing involved in all of this that's going to go beyond the garden. This is the setting to our story. And all they have to do, all they have to do is just not do something. Just don't eat of that tree. But it really doesn't come down just to not doing something. Really, it's about their heart, right? Sometimes we get so wrapped around things that we forget that this is, God isn't interested in the heart. So, um, so these are the covenantal conditions. And they can't do it. Uh, the woman is uh, tricked, and the man 
chose to break covenant. And Adam sins. In Adam's uh, sin, we all fell. And that brings us then to the curse. The Lord said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now there's a more poetic way of talking. Who is the seed? Spoken up here. This is a way of talking about birth and children. Uh, Jesus. Jesus, yes. So now the Messiah is being um, talked about as the one who will finally conquer and crush the head of the serpent. Okay? He is the anointed one, the chosen one, who will come and put on flesh for our sake die and be raised again for our sake. And the title Messiah, anointed one, is continued in the Greek as Christ. So the word Christ there. Uh, when we say Christ, we're not talking about Jesus' last name. Right? We're talking about a title that's given to him that is carried over from the Old Testament right, as Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. Okay. What's uh, amazing about the Old Testament is it helps us understand Christ even before uh, he was, uh, before uh, the earth was ever formed. If you help me uh, look at this, we can see it in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Um, this has been debated. I don't feel it's a debate anymore, but I think it depends on what you think the Old Testament is for. Um, when uh, wisdom is personified, you understand what I mean by that? When we take an idea and we give it human attributes to be able to talk about it, right? Um, the Old Testament does that sometimes. Here with wisdom, <coughs> wisdom is personified. Okay, It's given uh, human traits. But I will say this, as it's talked about, what we find is not just a personification of wisdom. We're talking about someone specifically, uh, the wisdom of God. In the New Testament, the wisdom of God is referred to as Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God. And here we see it uh, played out more specifically. Um, let's see, let's start at um, verse 22. Um, this is still talking about wisdom throughout this whole chapter, but the wisdom is the first person speaking. So the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, 
before his works of old, this is talking about before creation, wisdom uh, was possessed of the Lord. The Lord possessed me. Now, are we talking about wisdom as in the Lord was smart or the Lord understood something really well and that understanding is what's being talked about? Or are we talking about a person who is the wisdom of God? I think, um, I think there's enough good people that are smarter than me that have come to the same conclusion that this is talking about Christ. Um, if you keep your hand, Proverbs chapter 8, and look at John chapter 1, we're going to see some parallels here that will help us understand what's going on here. So we have, uh, just keep one hand in, in uh, Proverbs and one hand in John. So in Proverbs says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Look at John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. So we start seeing this parallel, right? This being with, this participating in the creation, and this idea of being in the beginning. So your first blank there for the pre-existent part is, before the world was created, he was eternally possessed by God. And what we see here is there is this closeness that has nothing that is outside of creation. Do you see the importance of that? Why is it that in Proverbs is talking he, the wisdom is talking about being with God or possessed of God before anything's created? Why does he make that emphasis? What's he trying to show there that the wisdom about what what about the wisdom is being shown there? Why talk about it as before anything's created? What's he trying to get at there? It's transcendent and eternal. Okay, that the wisdom was not created, right? He was already possessed of the of the Lord before the creation of the world. So what is being talked about here, and this is important to the Old Testament reader, that before anything was created, there was this wisdom. Meaning the wisdom existed before creation, which means the wisdom was not created. It's always there. Um, if we look, if we keep going into verse 30, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. So now we see that not only was this wisdom not um, created, but it was part of the one who created, who was the creator, 
right? He was part. He was part of it. He was participating in it. He was the master. Here, let me read to be. Um, he was. Um, I was beside him as a master workman. What does that sound like? Well, that sounds a lot like John one three, right? All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. See the parallel there. So now not only was the wisdom not created, but the wisdom is the one through whom God is created. Okay. And there's this delight together. So we see we're getting a peek into the Trinity of God the Father and God the Son delighting in each other. It's not just a... I mean, I think we... And rightly so. It's hard to understand the Trinity and all that stuff that's so beyond the human creaturely way of being. right? But there is something we can see that they're delighting in each other. And we do have a creaturely way of understanding delight, right? Um, all of us. Oh, yeah. Um, just the, just talking about that, right? We make things with our hands. Mm-hmm. God, in Genesis, didn't even bother, in his infinite uh, wisdom, <coughs> he used words, not by his hands. He spoke it mm. and through his word, which points to Christ. Mm-hmm. So you can see the honoring of the, the Father to the Son, the Son to the, to the Father, the yeah. relationship of how the word works. Yeah. And it's not by what we would think it would be, by hands. Yeah. Our infinite, our, our finite perception would be oh God created all things and automatically our mind goes to created by his hands but God's emphasizing here not he says word yeah and that's that's totally different yeah one and that's right one theologians uh, put it this way that God had a right and a left arm right the father the, the son and the spirit almost like his hands that go into the world. And so, and, and you're right, and not only that, but there's delight in it. Mm-hmm. I was just about to say, yesterday during work day, uh, Nathan was teaching his son uh, how, to, how to blow the leaves away from the building. And that there is, there really is an art to this. You don't just start blowing stuff everywhere. Uh, you get the corners and you bring everything toward, you know, in one way. And he's teaching his son this, right? He doesn't just grab it away and say, okay, you don't know what you're doing. I'm just going to do it. He's teaching him how to do it and then having him do it. And when you have your kids do the work that you have taught them to do and you see them doing it, they're trying hard because why? They want dad to be pleased with what they're doing. And when the dad sees the son doing what he's taught him to do, there is a delight there, right? When you, I mean, because you guys know what it's like when you're teaching your child to do something and it's frustrating and hard because we're creaturely people, there's sin in the world. 
But when they do it, and you know they're doing it because they want to please Dad, and they're doing it right because they've been taught how to do it, that kind of delight that's there, in a creaturely way, that's how we can understand what's happening, right? The Son is doing the work of the Father to please the Father, and the Father finds delight in His Son working. And that kind of delight we see, we get a glimpse here in the Old Testament, right? And we see it again in John, when the Son says, I'm not here to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I'm not saying what, I'm spo- what I want to say, I'm saying what the Father tells me to say, right? And the delight that goes in that, where the Father is watching His Son do the work. The Son wants to please His Father. This is, um, this is, if I can put it this way, foundational to existence. Because God himself is doing this. God himself is finding delight in father-son relation. So he de- um, in this next part, he delights in, uh, in, his, in the sons of men. And men find life where they find him. We see this in verse 35. For he who finds me, this is in Proverbs 8, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. If we look back in John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So now what we find is this delight that the Father and Son are having in creation, the Son is able to have in man. I mean, that's an incredible idea that how is it possible that he finds delight in us? And that his life is found in him. Only through wisdom is man able to find favor with God, according to verse 35. So, for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So, we have this strong comparison in verse uh, John 1 and Proverbs. If you look at verse 12 of John 1 says, but as many as received him through them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And we see this favor with the Father is found only through the Son. It was spoken of in in Proverbs, spoken of again in John. Um, So what do you think is the significance of, The light of the Father found in the Son. The Son delights in us. Um, What do you think that's going to mean as we get uh, further into Christ's work in the Old Testament? Well, I want you to think about that. There's going to be a parallel here that I think will be important. Must hurry. Okay. 
And I know this sounds weird uh, that we are going to go in the New Testament to talk about Christ's work in the Old Testament. But just bear with me for just one second. It explains something about what's going on with Adam. Why don't you turn to Romans chapter 5. <coughs> Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Because in Proverbs we had this big picture. The father's delighting in the son, the son's delighting in man. But what does that look like specifically? And how does this all come about? It starts with Adam. Right? The first created man. Uh, verse 12. Therefore, do not... Uh, do not oh, okay. There it is. Therefore... Just as though, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin did not. Uh, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. Okay. Now what's so wonderful about the NASB is that they use the right, uh, they use this word type. And there's a little one by it if you have one of those uh, uh, concordance Bibles. And what it should say there is that uh, it says, it could be foreshadowing, but that word type has the idea of a pattern. There is a pattern here. And what is this pattern of Adam that is foreshadowing this pattern to come in Christ? Adam's pattern was one of, and what we're going to find here. Remember our setting. He has this, uh, these conditions he has to live by, right? Um, we refer to this uh, when someone does something bad. Um, and they are uh, sentenced to a certain amount of time in prison. And when they come out of prison, they're put on what? Parole. Parole. They're given these conditions that they have to live by. To see if they will what? Either sin again and go back to jail, right? Or they stay on the right road. And then there's something that is wonderful that happens to someone that's on parole, that stayed straight, is they come off parole, right? And they get to become a citizen much like us, okay? So when we think of probation, we often think of someone that's already done wrong. I want you to think of probation as a list of rules that you have to live by so that something greater will come. Okay? So Adam was on probation. Doesn't mean he was in jail and did something bad and now they're seeing if he's going to stay good. But this probation was a way of living under a covenant... That if he stayed with that covenant, something even greater would come. Okay? So he was under probation. 
So Adam's pattern was one of covenantal probation. How did Adam do under probation, under that covenant of works? He failed, right? Um, We don't have all the answers as to what would have happened if he would have obeyed. But we know he didn't. So when Christ comes, what is his role in being the Messiah? He is under a what kind of pattern? Is it too obvious? Okay. A probationary pattern, right? So when Christ comes to earth, why is it so important that he follows the law in his life? In his life, he follows the law because he is in a probationary uh, condition. He is demonstrating that he can follow the law. So that his works are perfect, even to his death. So that when he is resurrected by the Father, right? In that resurrection, his life is examined and found what? Blameless. Blameless. That is hugely important. You understand the resurrection is evidence that Christ was the perfect sacrifice. If he wasn't, he would not be resurrected. That life he lived in that obedience to the law, as well as his obedience to death, was vital for his resurrection, because that resurrection shows he was approved. Okay? So all of that matters okay, in this pattern that starts with Adam. And this is why we call Christ the second Adam. Through, and then we see, and I want you to look at uh, Genesis 22. So in the Old Testament, we see the pattern that's supposed to be followed is Adam's pattern. It's a covenantal pattern. Covenant gives you the conditions you're supposed to live by, and then you have to live by them. Failure is death. Uh, the ability to live by the covenant is life. So in Genesis 22, uh, we see the covenant that God God makes with Abraham. Okay, 22.18, it's summed up at least over here in a good way that will help my verses work. So, in your seed, all nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Uh, In your seed... All nations. Okay? So from the start, was this about just the Jews? From the very start, was this, was God had in mind, okay, I'm gonna, the Jews are my chosen people, and they will be my chosen people all the way through, unless something really goes wrong, then I might have to add something. I said all the earth. Yes. Right? Uh, It's not that the Jews were the chosen people, and if they really mess up, then I'll add some Gentiles maybe, and we'll have to go through this church thing for a while, but then I'll get the Jews back. Does that that look like that's what the whole covenant is about? 
From the very beginning of the covenant, he is saying, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. And what kind of blessed is this? I think we talked about this last week. I'm not sure. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. In whom is all the spiritual blessings, your justification, your sanctification, your adoption, all of that is in whom? Christ. In Christ. Right? Ephesians is very clear. In Christ is all your spiritual blessings. And what does it say here? It says, uh, well, I just lost it. Okay. Um, there it is, 18. In your seed, all nations, uh, all nations of the earth will, will be blessed. Well, what is that seed? Or who is that seed? What is that? Yes. Yes, it's hard to read through Galatia, uh, the, the book of Galatians and remain unconvinced of Reformed theology. Um, if you look at Galatians chapter 3, it explains this. This is what's confusing about that term seed. In the English, uh, we can say seed and mean lots of seeds, right? He planted his, you know, he went to the, I act like I don't know anything about farming. But when someone farms, they go and they plow and then they plant their seed, right? You don't say, oh, he went and planted his seeds. Uh, you can, but uh, for the most part, we, don't, we can have that plural, right? So it does get confusing. But what's nice about Galatians, this almost anticipates that for us English speakers, Galatians uh, chapter 3, sorry, having such a hard time finding it. Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. So through Abraham... What seed are we talking about? We're talking about the nationality of Jewish people. What is the seed that's promised through Abraham? Christ. So we're talking about who is, according to Paul, a true Jew. Someone who's circumcised not in the flesh, but in the heart. Right? So your familial, your family... Uh, heritage, if you are in Christ, goes to Abraham. You are given those promises. If you keep reading, it even says that you will you have the promises of Abraham if you're in Christ. So who are the promises given to? God's people. How do you become God's people? You have to have be circumcised in the heart. What does that mean? It means you're in Christ. So through Abraham's seed, singular, all the families will be blessed. Because covenantal talk is always family talk. You think of it that way. Sometimes when people talk about covenants in the Old Testament, it gets confusing. We talk about it in Reformed theology, it kind of gets confusing. You just remember this. Oftentimes what we're talking about when we talk about covenantal talk, we're talking family talk. Right? Covenant comes with conditions. Just like every family, right? Sometimes that uh, familial condition means every once in a while there'll be a Saturday where you end up in an NRA banquet. 
<laughs> because you have a family that you know has certain things and you want to help the family how you want to love them so you go to things you do things every family has rules doesn't it i hope so um and so covenant is usually talking about generational families um christ is the covenantal head of his people jeremiah 31 31 through 34 and as we talked about before, Christ is the subject of the Old Testament in Luke 24, 44, and the climax of the New Testament. So you have Christ, who is the subject of the Old Testament, the climax of the New. In every story, there's a climax. In every story, the climax is pretty much the only reason you, ever, you ended up even listening to this story in the first place, Right? If a story doesn't have a climax, you're kind of wasting your time. The climax has to be really good. It has to be unexpected. But not just unexpected, it has to be also predictable. Right? If it's so unexpected, you're like, well, nothing follows that. That doesn't make any sense. That's a bad story. But when the climax comes, and you're like, whoa, that's incredible. And that makes sense because the whole story was pointing that the whole time. Right? That's a good story. Uh, there was a man... When I was getting my degree in creative writing, there was this very godless, godless man who hated God. Uh, and his stories reminded us of that. Uh, he was published well. I mean, I didn't know who he was, so I don't know if you know who he was, but he published books. People read him, novels and stuff like that. And he said this to us. He said, I don't believe in all that Christianity stuff, but he said, I'll tell you this. Every great story that has ever been written is a duplication of the story of Christ and his death on the cross. Whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> Why? Because it is the story that is the basis of all human existence. Right? We live in a story, not in a propositions. Right? So how is it that he did not believe? Because logic will never help you. It will take an act of God. Right? Yeah, so the last thing I wanted to say then, because I'm, again, we, we must go fast. Christ is the covenantal pattern for his people. When I say that we live in a story, what, what we're also saying is you live within a covenantal world. God, who's, who acts covenantally with his people, created a covenantal world. There's nothing more covenantal than a story. There is nothing that illustrates covenant better than a family. There is nothing that explains a human better than covenant. Because God, who is a triune God, a relational God, created a covenantal world for us to live in. And taught us to think this way. And so when Christ comes to be an example to us, he follows a pattern for us. It's not just a really good way to live. It's a covenantal pattern for you to mimic. This is why Paul says, mimic Christ. Mimic Christ. If you have to, mimic me, because I'm mimicking Christ. He said that under inspiration. And this mimicking isn't just a way of, well, what did he do? I'll do that. It's a, it's a pattern of life, of living under covenant, that we want to do. And as we go and start searching out what Christ is in his godness and what Christ is in his humanness 
in the next couple weeks. We need to keep this in mind because if we start losing the idea of a family covenant, we're going to lose the understanding of what we're talking about when we talk about these hard things. How is it that Christ is a pre-existing God yet took on flesh? And what does that even mean that now flesh is a part of God for eternity? He, something, he, he added something to himself that will never be subtracted. What does that mean? If you're not thinking in a family covenant way, you're not going to get it. And so we're going to start talking about and keep thinking about that as we go through. Does that help? All right. Well, let's have a word of prayer and get to church. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are a Father that thinks of our needs in a way that's not just creaturely, but a way through your Son you have accomplished our needs. And we thank you for the goodness of a Father who works through his son and a son that loves his people and a son that we can love through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask for your continued help as we think on these hard things, but mostly as we think on how we ought to live because of these things. We pray for your help uh, with us as we go into the service, that our hearts will be humbled before your word. You will give Andrew your speech for us, and that we would uh, bow our hearts to it. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.